Welcome to the Growth Pioneers Podcast. This is your host, Doug Irwin. On today's episode of the podcast, I speak with a dear friend and successful entrepreneur, Darius Marchevade. Darius and I have known each other for about 15 years and have been through a lot of life together. We do a deep dive into core values, his book, The Core Value Equation, and how he implemented this to grow a nearly thousand person corporation, the role of core values in his family. And then we discuss some of the challenges we faced in our own lives going through midlife and living an examined life. I hope you enjoy a fun, engaging, and thoughtful conversation. So on with the podcast. Welcome, Darius, to the Growth Pioneers Podcast. It's good to see you. Duggar! <laughs> oh, I've been so looking forward to this episode, my friend. It's just, you are actually, you know, a big part of the inspiration for this podcast. I don't know if you know that. You know, I didn't know that. I'm glad to have inspired and I'm super excited to be on it as well. It was funny. I don't know if I knew you were doing it until, I, until after you did it. And then I was like, I want to be on his show. <laughs> well, you've always been an inspiration for me, Darius. I mean, honestly, when you launched TEDx Golden Gate, that's when you first exposed me to TEDx. And obviously, we went up to the TED Active Conference. But you were really the inspiration for TEDx Reno for me, too. So, yeah, man, we inspire one another. So, it's the, the inspiration is mutual. <laughs> well, you know, they know me. Why don't you tell the audience a little bit about you? Yeah. So, my name is Darius Mershazade. I'm a serial entrepreneur. I call myself a mad scientist serial entrepreneur. Actually, I say culture building mad scientist. Like, I have these people that do work for me and somehow like has morphed into like mad scientist CEO. And I'm like, no, it's culture build building mad scientists. Come on, get it right. Hey, I have a question. What's the rating of this show? Let's just keep it in the PG-13 range. How about that? All right, I'll hold on. I got to turn on the PG filtering algorithm. <laughs> <laughs> all right, I've now filtered 30% of all bad language out of my mouth. Yeah, so um yeah, sorry. I'm in the I'm I'm in mid algorithm. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know it's a big ask for you, Darius. I I, I know that's sort of actually probably the hardest thing I'm going to ask you all day is to keep it PG-13. I know. I'm like, damn it. <laughs> so, yeah, I um I do love to curse. It's true. There's something special about curse words. When you start digging into where they come from historically, it gets even better. Like, do you know what the F word stands for? I have no idea. For unlawful carnal knowledge. Like, <laughs> actually, that's, and that's a lie. That is a urban legend that's untrue. It's actually derived from like a Danish word that's derived from a German word. The fact that you know this does not surprise me at one bit. <laughs> well, I was like, I was like, if I'm going to use the word a lot, I should know its origins. <laughs> Good point. Good point. Well, and the other thing is I would tell people it's my favorite word. So if you ever say something is your favorite, you better go know the history of it. That's <laughs> a, you know, that's like you can't have a favorite thing and not know the history of it. That like completely demeans your relationship with that item. So anyway, I, um, I've been a, a serial entrepreneur and I, you know, I think of myself as, and I think I was telling you this, now Doug, or you guys may not know this, Doug and I have been in a CEO forum for 15 years together. So we go way back. He's like my brother from another mother. Yeah. What an amazing experience. Yeah, it's pretty weird because it's 2021. I joined in 06. Did you join in 06 too? I think I joined in 05, actually. Yeah, so when you're in something for that long, at some point, it's like, it's just another home, right? It's a thing that feels like home. And especially if you're doing it with with a journey involved, and with us, that means many things. But when you're doing it with a journey involved, then you, you see a lot of ups and downs over an extended period of time. You get to really know a human being through a lot of iterations of their changing and the end of their metamorphosis. And so for me... I'm at a point right now where I'm, and I think maybe we're both here where we're, we've hit midlife. And so, you know, midlife being where, you know, we're in our 40s 
and we got another good, hopefully 40 to 50 years to go get after it. And I don't know about the audience, but I think the Duggar and myself, I'm going to speak on your behalf right now, have had heavy contemplation over the last couple of years and have really kind of dug in and pulled out the mirror and looked hard into it. And so I, I want to tell people right now is that I'm kind of exploring this, being a serial entrepreneur for so long, I kind of turned my back on my creative side. And so now I'm trying to hover in these different realms. I could say I'm like 60% CEO and 40% artist. And my artistry is, you know, me just being creative, unadulterated, sometimes adulterated <laughs> a creativity. And so for me, yeah, but going back to the CEO side, especially entrepreneurs that are listening are me like, yeah, guy, get to the point is... I really spent the first probably almost 20 years of my, you know, I'm on the 21st year now, probably first 19, 20 years, really focused on high growth, building big companies. Like I wanted to build, like my thing was like, I'm going to build a billion dollar company and, and not like fake valuation from, you know, Andrew Horowitz billion, like a company that brings in a billion dollars of revenue in one year, a billion. And now I, that was kind of my intention. I didn't get there. You got close. Oh, hey, yet. <laughs> <laughs> But I did get to, I mean, that company, I can't go into raw numbers, but I got a, a nine-figure company. I got there in one year. So I can collectively say that I've done over a billion dollars as a CEO of revenue I've brought in. And it's not that fake revenue where you take credit for someone else's revenue. Like people do this, like we have a billion dollars of revenue. I'm like, yeah, but 999 million of that was like client AdWords you bought. Like that's not really a billion in revenue. A billion in revenue is like where you have a real profit margin baked in. That's not like a pass through. So yeah, I, I spent the first part of my adult life wanting to do that. And then once I did it, you know, got to nine figures, I was like, I really wanted to build a hundred million dollar company. I was like, once I did that, which was, you know, about probably 15 years into it, I was like, all right, that's cool. But it wasn't what I thought it would be. And then I was like, all right, maybe it'll feel different at a billion. So I started fighting for that. And on the way up that mountain, I don't know, man, I lost a lot of momentum. <laughs> but, it, you know, you gained so much insight into yourself along the journey. Then you've taken that, the things that you've learned and turned it into a book and turned it into a, you know, I don't want to call media empire yet, but, you know, a podcast, a coaching practice. You've done all of these things on the tail end of that that really are, were informed by your journey. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I got lucky about six years, seven years into my entrepreneurial journey. I built my first company, Twin Capital, and we built it from myself to about 150 employees in three years. And I was young. I was 25 when I started that company. So I was like a 28-year-old CEO with 150 employees. And it was about a $10 million company. And I literally had no idea what I was doing. But I got introduced to the Scaling Up methodology. And I got into this program called Birthing of Giants. And I got introduced to the concept of utilizing uh, mission, vision, and values in your business. Now, I also was like, how do you do it? <laughs> what do you do with it? How do you make it happen? How do you make core values come to life in your company. And I started just getting all this like anecdotal feedback and everyone was kind of doing it their own way. And I had this moment two years into that program where these two CEOs from Vancouver, Canada, it was graduation night and they ran us through this process where they said, okay, please stand up if your company has core values. And so we, everyone in the room stood up because we've been taught that we need to have core values, myself included. I had six values, 76 words. And uh, they said, please stay standing if you could say your company core values off the top of your head. And I sat down. Now, it felt like crap. You know, I was going to say a different word, but I said, <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> it felt like crap. And then I looked around and half the room had sat down with me. And I was like, what the heck? I was like baffled. Like I didn't expect that. And then I said, well, please stay standing if your employees know your core values. And half the remaining half sat down. And now I'm like, I was like flabbergasted. And then they said, please stay standing if your customers know your core values. And everyone sat down. So then I just realized, and these are some of these people have some really successful businesses. But what I realized was, you know, successful in terms of like their companies that people celebrated, right? 
Whether they had a core value driven company was a totally different story. The answer is probably in some ways they did, but it wasn't like fully baked. And, and so I, I, it set me off on this journey. It was a pivotal, it was June of 08 when that happened. And I was dealing with a bunch of other issues because that company, it was a subprime mortgage lender, so it imploded. And I was dealing with the aftermath of that. But it did kind of turn me in the direction of, well, that's weird. Like, why do they say you have to have these things in your business, but no one has them? Like, if you don't know them, do you really have them? If your employees don't know your values, are those related values of the company? And the answer is absolutely not. Like, of course they're not. Now, there might be elements of it that exist just through behavioral, but if they don't really know it intentionally, is it really alive and well and kicking and making things happen and driving decision making on a consistent basis? And I already, we all know the answer to that. It's no, it's not. It's happening maybe. A friend of mine, she taught me this quote, which is that companies don't have core values, people have core values. So what ends up happening is if you do a good job recruiting people that are like you or like the values you espouse or kind of espouse, then what ends up happening is, is that when that person's posed with the decision, they probably will make it align with their values, which might align with your company's values. But I could guarantee you it's not happening consistently. It's just happening kind of as it happens. And so there's a word for that. You know what that is, Duggar? No, no, no. It's a really famous word. It's called inconsistency. Oh, okay. There you go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you create inconsistency in the organization. And as we know, as people that have built companies or entrepreneurs, we know that that's a killer, right? Inconsistency equals friction or friction equals waste and waste equals lost opportunity. Lost opportunity equals lost value. So and simply, you're not making as much money as you could. If that's what your goal is, or you're not creating the value you want to create, you're not building the company you want to build. So I got really nerdy about it. Duggar's like, yeah, I know. I had a front row seat to this guy. Which was amazing to watch. So I'm curious. I mean, I've heard the story, but I am curious, like, what is it about that that really got you to dive into it? There's a lot of people in that room and a lot of people recognize they weren't fully Lebanese and they could see the map. But I wonder what it was about. Was there a thing that really just got you fired up about that? I don't know why I cared so much about that. I do know that I have a thing about like, I want that alignment. When I build a business, I want people to show up and be like freaking hardcore about it. I want them to feel like they're a part of something greater than themselves. I want to be a part of something greater than myself. I want to build that organization that has that level of impact. And it just kind of made sense to me that that's a way to get there, right? Like, like, well, if you have everyone living the same values, by the way, do you know what the actual definition of core values is? No, no. What is it? I didn't know either. And I'm going to say this for the audience. I figured this out or about four months after I published my book that's about the subject. I wrote a book called The Core Value Equation. And so I realized I hadn't looked up the definition, just like I didn't know the origin of the F word. <laughs> so my number four strength, a Gallup strength finder strength is learner. I'm always the guy that asks, huh, why is that that? You know, why is the F word the F word? Why is it from the root word? <laughs> you know, whatever it is, right? <laughs> But I love that you wrote a book on the subject before you looked it up. So there must be another strength that sort of trumps your learner here. Achiever, maybe, or, you know. Well, you know, you know, I use Colby Index. I'm a 6383, which means I have an eight quick start out of 10, which means I like just go do it. And then I like look back afterwards. I'm like, oh, you know, shoot, aim, fire or whatever. Like I shoot first. So yeah, that's very much in line with me. I'll go publish a book and launch a book on a subject. I have not yet looked up the definition. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> I'm such an expert at it that I didn't even care what the definition was. Now, intuitively, the good thing is I have high intuition. So intuitively, I'd landed in the right spot, which is the definition of core values, if you look it up in the dictionary, is it's the fundamental beliefs of a person or an organization. The fundamental beliefs of a person or organization. So you can't tell me that if you have a team of people coming together in an organization and they may or may not share the same fundamental beliefs, that that doesn't matter. Oh, it hugely matters. 
that absolutely matters. Yeah. Right. So what I think what happens is, is we just do it kind of by like, you know, lick our finger, throw our thumb in the air. We just kind of do it off intuition. Oh, this person seems like they share my values. I, I think this person's my kind of a person. I'd have a beer with that person. Hey, hey your, your companies do this all the time. What, what is your criteria for hiring? Number one, it's got to be someone we're willing to have a beer with. <laughs> so a lot of people I'd want to have a beer with that I wouldn't want to be in the trenches with. Well, that's what I said. I said, there's tons of people I love having beer with that I would never want to work with, right? Like that can be one of the criteria, but like there's, that's about 10% of the, of the equation. There's a good 90% that matters a hell of a lot more. That has to be there too. It's, there's plenty of people I'd like to work with that I don't care if I have a beer with. Like we do, we do work the same way, but yeah, they you know, they go home and be a nerd or whatever it is they do by themselves and I'll go do my thing, you know? So I don't know where I went with that, but. <laughs> well, you were talking about, you know, the origins of the book. And, you know, learning what core values really meant. I, I, I'll just say that, you know, watching you through this experience, A, you know, when you said you were intuitive about this, I totally agree with you. I remember one of the first meetings at Twin Capital. I feel like you guys had like a Voltron t-shirt. Like, I can't remember the team dynamic, but even before you were really explicit and intentional about core values, you were doing a lot in terms of T building and alignment. And so what you just said about like really wanting to people to be fired up and involved, I knew that from the moment I met you. And this was probably before the core value equation idea had even come to you. Oh, yeah, yeah. That was way before I had consciously understood that I needed that core values can become what they can become. And my belief is really simple. My belief that I've landed on is that core values can become the language of your life and of your organization. And your language, when used properly and consistently, equals all the results. So this is where the, the equation is just that. It's core values equals results. And, and the book kind of walks you through that, how I landed on that, which was you know 18 years in the making. But again, I think intuitively, it resonated with me for whatever reason. My upbringing, you know, just the way I am as a human being, I saw it as a tool. It made sense to me that number my number two strength is communication. So words are a big deal for me. That's why I like bad words because I think they're so wonderful that mean so many things to so many different people and they can be loving yet damaging. <laughs> I like the nuance of words. And so core values can be the language of the organization. And so for me, I was doing it intuitively. I've always done things intuitively and then I find the tool to match my intuition. Sure. Um, and, and that's been my journey as an entrepreneur is follow my intuition and then inevitably there's tools that are already there that, that someone's created that kind of matches up. And then I kind of go discover those and or, and or build them myself. So I did that and I spent a good five years, you know, June of 08 is when I had that moment at MIT, but I didn't really get to play with it because I, I went through five years of turmoil as a CEO or, you know, 08, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11 were dark, brutal years for me as an entrepreneur. And I went through almost five whole years of really failure from like a optical lens. You know, anyone that was watching me then, which I know Doug was, what you would say that there was, I wasn't some dude you were bragging about. I was not like the next Elon Musk, you know? It was like, oh man, that guy's killing it. Nobody was saying that about me. Well, it's your dark night of the soul though. I mean, I think that's, you know, in those times you really learn the most, right? You may not be the optical version of success, but you're really developing all the internal skills of resilience and learning what you don't want to do. And I mean, you came out on the other side of that so much stronger. Well, yeah, I think the inertia one would have needed to have gone through that was just pure, sheer muscle and will, right? I told my entrepreneurial story, which is a pretty crazy story. I'm happy to get into it if you guys want, to a group of entrepreneurs in this group I'm in called Tiger 21. And one of the guys was like, 
and I have a lot of nicknames because my name is Darius Merchazade, which is the most like long and crazy name that you can probably have unless your name's like the Russians have a little bit more awkward name than I do. But having two silent H's and having a Persian name with a super Persian last name, like you're primed to have nicknames, especially if you have a big personality, which I do. So he's like, has anyone ever told you that you should have the nickname Tenacious D? <laughs> and I was like, you know what, Ryan? No, I have had lots of nicknames. And if I went through them, you would be amazed because that one's way more obvious than the other ones. But you can be the first person to ever call me Tenacious D, which now is now his nickname for me. And it was because of my entrepreneurial story, because I think I just have a tenacious soul. I'm super curious. If I go through my personal core values, which are my number one is happiness, which is, which I, I call heart. My number two is Bessos, which I call love. My number three is Eye of the Tiger, which is passion, which is all around grinding and getting after it. Number three is boom, which is creativity. Number or So that's four is creativity, which is boom. Number five is curiosity. We call it Cinco, which is what, where, who, when, and why. The five words. And my last one's balance, which I call movie night. It's my family core values. But there's a lot of tenacity in Eye of the Tiger. I get after it. Yeah. In many directions, whether it's around soul searching or, you know, making myself a better human being, I can't help myself. It's something that I just do. So yeah, Tenacious D is a pretty a spot on nickname. Yeah. And one of the things that, you know, I love about your personal core values, and I think one of the things that so differentiates the way you talk about these is you really personalize them. You know, I've talked to a lot of people, a lot of entrepreneurs, I'm like, talk about core values, and they go immediately to mission, vision, and, you know, values, and they're all kind of sterile. And I think the thing, you know, and I'm, I don't want to oversimplify your process, but I mean, the thing that really resonates with me about the, the way you've created your values is they really are yours. I mean, pizza night equals balance. And there's a whole, you know, there's a lot of language underneath that really speaks to you. That's like the way you talk about it. That I think is a, such a differentiated way because I've seen a lot of these values and I'm like, oh, it's integrity and it's this. And I'm sure that those are true, but they don't feel as resonant as your values do. So well, it's movie night, but I'll take oh, pizza night. Pizza night, movie night. <laughs> it's all good. I do have pizza night and a movie night. Duggars just jump in the gun. Um, so you know what it is, is that if I ask you to describe integrity to me, you're going to start describing it. And what you're going to realize is you're really describing five values to me. So integrity to you may not be integrity to me. You know, integrity is one of those ones where they're similar for most people just because it's like, you know, people don't do integrity necessarily that differently. But I guarantee you, if you start describing what integrity looks like to you, a lot of it will look the same from person to person, but there still is the way you talk about it's different and the way you think about it's maybe a little bit different. And that's the tone. And that's why I say that core values have the opportunity to be the language of your life is you talk about your life differently than I talk about my life. We have a different tone in the way we speak and think. And so that's just an opportunity as far as I'm concerned. It's like you could say integrity and I could say integrity and we go, oh my God, we share integrity. It's like, or you could say, no, it's like heart of a lion. <laughs> you know, it's like, if I tell you my core value is heart of a lion, you'll be like, that's badass. Like, what does that mean? And it's like, you know so much more about me. I get light warrior. I want to be light warrior. Can I be light yeah. Exactly. And if I say, what does that mean to you? And you start saying it, I just know way more about what that word means to you. I know you, I know so much more about you as a human being than if you just said the word integrity, like so much more. And so I look at that, I'm like, that's the miss, by the way. And this is what I figured out when I started playing with this is core values need to be memorable. They need to be in the tone of the organization or of, of your life. And they need to speak to you and they need to speak to the organization. They should define the personality, the essence of what you are, as you know, Coach, Coach Robert says. So what happens is people go the other way, which is they pick these sterile, sometimes it's like catchy, like in the vogue language, like a radical candors are core value. And I'm like, yeah, you and everybody else, idiot. And so it's like, sorry, hey, sorry, millennials. <laughs> it's red can, red can. <laughs> 
It's like I'm like I'm gonna beat you with your with your like <laughs> moped. Anyway, <laughs> that's a whole that's a whole other podcast on millennials. We'll have to do that one next. Yeah. But why do you think people stop there? I mean, what is the challenge to get it into their own language? Uh, I don't think I don't think it's I think if everyone it's like anything if everyone knew that hey if you do this thing if I you sit down and write intentionally write down what is important to you what behaviors you want to live by and then you describe them in detail and have them and use them that they can then become a guidepost for all decision making in your life wouldn't you sign up for that. Absolutely. But this is a key point that this is one of the things that I was like a really aha moment for me, that your core values are like a filter function for decisions in your life. You use your values in terms of hiring, decision making. They show up in many different ways. And I, I will say, you know, one of the core values at Edon is entrepreneur first. And, you know, that may not be the best language or whatever, but I'll tell you what is freaking clarifying. And it's so clear to me. And it's something that I have been able to use to rally other people around because, you know, everybody has their own ideas about what they're doing in the world. But when we're like, no, 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 like what you're doing puts the entrepreneur first, it's clarifying. And if you're not, then you're not on board with this. That's fine. You can go do your own thing. And so I have lived this firsthand about how that can be a rally cry to bring other people together. And again, just as a decision point. So it was very much an aha moment for me. Yeah. You know, like when core values become the language of the organization, four things happen. Number one is it becomes the language of accountability. It's the items, the beliefs, the behaviors that you as an organization can go to center on or you and your personal life go to center on and know that that's what I stand for. And it's it's non-negotiable. It's if I break it, at least I know knowingly breaking my values, right? Like we're not a perfect. You can throw core values together and people will break them. And there's like breaks where you can't recover from it. And there's breaks where you just learn from it and get better, right? But it becomes a language of accountability. And the number two thing is it becomes a guide for decision-making, the ultimate decision-making engine. But and what, but they have to be designed for this. So I say core values need to be discovered. I didn't make that up, by the way. Other people did. Uh, Vern Harnish came up with that. You need to discover, and this comes from Jim Collins, actually, in Built to Last. You need to discover what the three to six values that you are willing to die for? Like, what are you willing to lose money for as an organization? What are you willing to, what are the non-negotiables? And you can't be everything to everyone. So there's really a hierarchy of values. So discover what matters to you. And I call those core value themes. And those could be words like integrity or courage or collaboration or innovation or whatever. But where everyone, what happens is, is people do this, they discover, they roll out, and then they do a light implementation. And you know what that results in, Duggar, don't you? Well, like limited results or something. I mean, like they don't get adopted. Yeah, nothing. Nothing happens. Like they're called words on paper. And I learned that the hard way because I did that to start with. My belief is you have to discover, then you have to design them for use. It's like anything. Like, do you know how many pictures were taken in the world? Like camera, actual snapshots of pictures in the year 2010? Trillions. No, no. 83 billion. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. The the smartphones that were early adoption at that point. Oh, back then. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. Do you know how many were taken in 2020? Trillions. <laughs> yeah, one point one point one trillion, right? Is it that we all decided that it was like we really wanted to pick up the hobby of photography? No. No, absolutely not. We got this tool that has super high utility value designed for us to want to take pictures whenever the hell we want. So the design of the phone makes makes the function of camera taking pictures easy now. So that is why design matters so much for this. You need to make core values easy for from a utility standpoint, easy use. And if you make them easy, guess what will happen? They'll be adopted and they'll be lived. 
people will use them. Yeah. yeah. And, and so what I found was they have to be authentic and they have to be in the tone of the organization. And it's just like anything. If you, if you make them authentic, you make them in the tone of the organization, they have an opportunity to become viral and sticky in that organization or in your life. You'll, you'll use them more. The more you use them, the more you get value out of them. So discover design and organizations, you have to indoctrinate people into it. So you got to roll them out properly. I talk about that in my book. And then you have to do, implement them on an ongoing basis. So I call that the rollout is a core value wedding. The implementation is the marriage. And what happens is there's a lot of people maybe do some weak rollout, they have an okay wedding, uh, and then they never talk to their spouse again. And there's there's a word for that in the English language. You know what that's called? Divorce. Yeah, it's called divorce. Yeah. <laughs> I got one right. Yeah, yeah. It's called divorce. And so you got to have ongoing implementation. And then what I say is, well, why do it? And the answer is, if you can't measure it, you can't improve it. And so... And you want to do it for ROI. So I designed all these systems for how do you measure for efficacy and optimization. And then you want to keep going back and making it better and better. And But the key is you got to make it easy. It's got to be viral. It's got to be sticky. Think of anything that's viral and sticky in the world. It's not because it's cumbersome and hard to do. It's easy and people like it. So they spread it, right? You have that opportunity with, with the values. And when you do that, four things happen. Number one, it it's the language of accountability. Number two, it creates the ultimate decision-making engine. In my organization, you know, we would have tough decisions. And you sat with me when I went through some of these where, I mean, these were like, I mean, I had seven rounds of layoffs where it was like laying off a couple hundred people all at once. You know, like how you do that matters. These are people's lives and livelihoods and your reputation's at stake. The beliefs of the people that don't get laid off, that matters because the people that stay are the ones that are going to judge you the most and you still are living with them, right? So we had stuff like that or sold a business or had to fire a top producer, you know, these really tough decisions. The core values when they're designed properly, they should give you, make it binary. It's either if you live the values, you're going to do X. If you don't, you're going to do Y. Make a decision. And so often, you know, what started happening when we designed them for high utility value is I would have these moments where we'd have these really, really tough decisions. And my business partners and I would sit down and I'd say, well, I don't know what to do. Let's like, just read the values. And we'd read them because they were designed well. And every time you want to know what we would say? Was it really clear? I mean, you're just like... No, we'd say we'd say the SH word. Oh, shoot. But it wasn't shoot. It was the <laughs> other one. And you know why? Because I knew the answer. I just didn't want to make that decision. It was the hard decision. Yeah. And now I had to own it. Because here's the deal, man. If it's an easy decision, you don't have to go read your values to figure it out. Sure, you just know how to do it. Yeah. Yeah, if it's low stakes or it's easy, you just like, yeah, like, like I'm hungry. I'm going to go eat that pizza. It's not like, oh, should I have a layoff on Christmas Eve or not? You know, like that's not the same decision. If it's hard, that's when you need a, more or less a, a higher power to tell you what matters to you most. Yeah, you know? it's like, it's almost like, you know, I was talking to a good friend of mine who's in the fire service and he was always talking about like under a crisis, people don't rise to the occasion. They fall back on their training and your values are like the foundation of your training, right? Like if you have to make a hard decision, you just refer to the things that you've trained that you believe deeply and you, you make a decision on that. Yeah. I've seen this in our own work. I mean, we, you know, from a community standpoint, we're always looking at different programs to come in. And if we ever get to this place where we don't know where to go, we go back to our values. And it's like, is it entrepreneur first? Does it raise the bar? Does it really make an impact? And those three, and there's a few other ones, but those are the top three. If it doesn't meet those criteria, it's really easy. You know, one out, you're out. And it has saved me so much time and brain damage over trying to make decisions. I mean, it's not perfect for us, obviously, but it has been very clarifying in terms of the way we've implemented it in our community. Yeah. And that's amazing to hear. And, I, and kudos to you for that, because it's never perfect for anybody. Like life is hard and dirty, right? I just found that this just makes this hard existence less hard. At least I know why I'm doing what I'm doing. And guess what? So does my whole team. I like, And I don't have to explain it to them. 
They're like, oh yeah, that's people matter. Oh yeah, that's inspiring leadership. Oh yeah, I'm not providing rock solid service, which were three of our four values. And when they weren't doing it, there was no excuse. It's like, no, it's clear. Read the descriptive, which is part of the design process. Did you say what does it look like in real life? When you do those two things though, two other things happen. Um, Number one is you become a magnet for talent in both your life and in business. People know what I am. Yeah. (laughs) And I attract the people that resonate with that at a high level. like in an easy way. They don't have to discern. They know because I say what I am, you know? And you're not for everybody. And that's an actually like a really powerful thing, right? Like, you know, I know Amazon, a bunch of these companies have this. It's like you either fit or you don't. And that's fine. Like, it's not a problem. Like, you don't need to be all things to all people. It's better to be clear about who you are and you bring in the right people that resonate with you. And, you know, to your point, gosh, I mean, we're in the midst of a global battle for talent. Like being clear about who's right on your team and who's wrong on your team can make all the difference. Right. And it becomes a differentiating value proposition because if you show up to my shop and I'm talking about who we are as an organization in really specific language that resonates with us and you resonate with that language, and then you go across the street and the guy over there is talking about what snack bar they have. Like, I'm sorry, I'm going to kick your ass. Like you're going to lose every time. If we're paying the same and have similar benefits, I don't I maybe don't even have to pay the same. I could probably pay a little less, but if you resonate with my values and my organization and the type of leadership we have, I become a magnet for talent. And I saw that in my last business that I just started attracting talent that I really had no business attracting. Like they were leaving bigger organizations to come to our organization because we stood for something that was more aligned with what they stood for. And that's a, that's a big deal. I would rather have an army of like-minded core value driven org- people, you know, than a group of apathetic people that are just there for a paycheck. And so often that's what people become. They lie to themselves a bit and say, oh no, everyone, lo- we have an army of people that would. And I'm like, how do you know? I always just say, how do you know? People love working here. My question is, how do you know? Oh, I just, I just know it. And I go, prove it. What do you mean prove it? I'm like, prove it. There's ways to prove it. Go do the ENPS. Go do your Q12. Go pull that data and then compare yourself against every other company out there. All of this stuff's out there in this world today. So you don't need to guess. And when people say it, I go, sure, prove it. Yeah. ENPS, these are great tools to help you prove it. I guess one of the things you said that just really resonated with me, this is really what you're talking about is start with why. At some level, people buy why you do things, not what you do. And so when you're very clear about your values, you're able to resonate with people and the people want to participate in that because they're buying into why you exist, right? When you're comparing the snack bar versus your values, to me, that's just your why. They want to be aligned with that. You know, the snack bar and all those things, how and what, whatever. They, they could be an example of your why. And, I, and what I say is that your values level up to the greater why, right? So values are really the components within this bigger thing above it, which is your why. Tony Lilios, who I know you know, and I were talking briefly about this. I need to actually go deeper with him. But he's like, one level above your why is who you are, right? Your values are what you are. Your why is why you do it. Who you are is where, what that, where that all comes together. What, what are you? Who are you as an organization or as a leader? You know, people quit managers. They don't quit companies, right? Usually it's that, that's the case. And statistically speaking, that's been proven. You know, when you do those things, when I get an army of like-minded and they don't have to be, but this is not like-minded in the sense that they're all robots. It's that they have the similar fundamental beliefs or they, or their beliefs don't, are not in conflict with each other. Cause you don't have to share the exact personal core values. You just have to agree that the company core values resonate with your core values. And you guys show up to make that happen together in bulk. When you do that, the greatest thing that happens is that thing that I call invisible scale, which is it's when people show up and do the right things at the right time, the way you would do it if you were the founder, because not because they have to, but because they want to. Yeah. Wow. And, and when that happens, and I learned this when I built my last business and we had gone from 30 to about 300 employees in 18 months and the Duggar had a 
total front row seat for that one. And I remember there was a moment and you know, when you're growing that fast, it's not because you have superior training or policies and procedures or systems or even pay for that matter. You don't have any of those things. You're, I mean, we bootstrapped it. It was because we had created an army of people that were speaking the same language. And I caught that 18 months in. I'm like, we have like an 83 ENPS. And I looked around, I was at a team build and I just noticed something. Everyone was speaking core value language. And I was like, holy shnikes. I just created like this cult of people that are speaking a core value language. That rocked my world because that was the first time I'd kind of done it at that size. And then we went from 300 to 1,000 employees in the next 18 months. And the big thing, though, was when we went from 30 to 300, I left this out. And this is the key. We had zero growing pain. None. Zero. Like zilch. Like this was a place that was like humming. And we did it without having all those corporate infrastructural things that you would associate without having growing pains. And so I realized that I was already all in on values at that point, but I went from being like all in to being like triple all in. Yeah. Well, you just proved it to yourself. Like it was, you know, a theory and then you made it real and you saw the output of that. Well, and the outcome surprised me because I had never expected to grow like that without having the growing pains. And so then we went from 300 to 1,000 and I'd be lying if I said we didn't have any growing pains. But what I did notice was we did have growing pains because at a certain size, you do need some of those more traditional infrastructures. We actually grew to that, then we tore it down to about 500 and then rebuilt it back to almost a thousand with the more, and we did it very quickly. I did that in about another 18 months. And when I did it the second time, it was easy because I figured that there was some actual physical infrastructure I needed, you know, whether it be systems, policies, procedures, L&D, all those things, the more traditional corporate systems you need at that bigger scale. But it was quick and easy because from a values perspective, that invisible scale existed already. Yeah. And now it was just like, yeah, fundamentally we're the right people. We just need to help them because we had grown too fast and with the structures we had built didn't support that size of growth. But it's pretty amazing when you have invisible scale in the business. That's something that I'm now looking at and saying, this is an opportunity every organization can have. And how valuable is it if you can grow faster, remove friction from the organization, if you can build an organization that attracts superior talent. I'll tell you this, Doug, my belief is that, especially where we're at from a technological standpoint, you know, technology is insane right now. And I'm so excited and scared for what the next 10 years of technology are going to look like. Me too. I was in a conversation today with this family office that I'm investing some money with. And we were talking about this this trading strategy where they're lending money to people who are trading crypto. And literally, people could borrow money by the hour to go buy more crypto against their crypto because they want to... They're day trading crypto. Yeah, margin or some form of margin trading. Yeah, it's margin. But here's the kicker. It's all dynamically priced with surge pricing based off of how much you're borrowing against the market, supply and demand of crypto at that moment to borrow crypto, to trade crypto. Wow. Literally, people are borrowing with dynamic pricing to trade crypto on margin on the blockchain. And, I, and I'm a guy that like knows enough to be dangerous about most things that are like kind of technical on the financial side. And I was like, this is insane. If we're living in a world where that type of stuff's happening... Oh, and by the way, it's supported by an insurance plan so that people feel safe that they're lending money against crypto that's insured so that if someone steals the crypto or whatever, that crypto has an insurance behind it. And that is shown through a transparent blockchain so you could see the actual claims being paid on the insurance on the blockchain. Like, talk about an organic financial system, right? This is oh, like yeah. insanity, right? And I use that to make a really critical point. If that's what's happening technologically in the world today, you can't tell me the systems you're using in your company to run your business are that much different than your competitors. You know, if I'm running a restaurant, I'm not going to beat them on technology. No. You know, if I'm running a like 
house cleaning service, my tech's not going to be the differentiating value prop. And let's assume that wages are commoditized, which they more or less are because of the transparency in the workplace around wage. And we have a hot market, so the demand's high, so supply not even meeting that demand with the market that we're in today. And so when you have dynamics at work where there's efficiencies in the labor pool and you have efficiencies on the technological side, then what's the differentiating value prop between you and your competitors? And my answer is your values. Your values, yeah. Wow. No, that's a really powerful insight, Darius. I mean, you know, and you can see it. I mean, the best companies pull the best talent, but the best companies resonate with people. And what I'm hearing you say is if you align with those values, you can differentiate yourself in a world where everything else is largely commoditized. Yeah, if I could create a magnet for talent that believes the same things the organization believes and does so in a way where they're more engaged, they're working in their talents, they're living in their values, the organization's aligned. Because really what happens, what slows an organization down? Internal conflict, friction in the organization around execution and strategy. Um, Usually the company itself is why... If you ever have an issue in your business audience, I could tell you whose fault it is. Go get a mirror. It's yours. And so... And this is true for all of your problems for the, for the most part, just broadly yeah. in your life. But that's a whole other conversation. Yeah. Don't blame your kids, your wife, or God. Blame yourself. Okay. And the same holds true for those of you with husbands. So um, the answer is you have only one person to blame, you. And that's the same in your organization. It's not that someone cheated or if only this one thing would have happened. It's like, no, it's your fault. You didn't execute good enough with the right strategy to beat the guy sitting right next to you. And what I'm telling people is like, listen, man, look at your room. If you're sitting in your car right now, look in your car, look at every single thing you can see in your car. Every single one of those things is a billion dollar plus business. Every one of them. That sticker on your AC, that's a billion dollar business. That empty ketchup packet in your cup holder, billion dollar business. That styrofoam cup on the ground that your kid's stepping on right now that doesn't even have a logo on it, billion dollar business. By the way, the print, the ink that someone's printing on that cup, billion dollar business. And guess what? None of those are sexy businesses I just spoke of. So there's every business, there's opportunity to have a big, crazy, sexy business because the world's a big place. And when I look at each one of those businesses, every one of them has the opportunity to what outperform the competition. You're not in the I print on styrofoam cup business because everyone at Harvard can't wait to get into that industry. <laughs> I wanted to be a print ink specialist, actually. Yeah, I'm really dying to get into the plastic fork business. Like, I want to get after the, the what's the name, disc or whatever. Yeah, like, no one said they want to go into those businesses, but each one of those businesses are boring, staple businesses. And you want to go compete against them? You're not going to do it by being sexy. You're probably not going to do it on price. But if I hire better people that can think in a more dynamic way, that can cut costs faster, that could run with a leaner team, that can pull higher engagement out of their team for more productivity, what's going to happen there? I mean, the answer is crazy. Like when you look at engagement data, and I believe that people that show up that are aligned from a values perspective have a higher likelihood of being engaged. Yeah. But the data is crazy. 21% more productivity out of highly engaged employees. Well, what does that mean from a profitability standpoint? Your last 20% of your profit is your most profitable dollars that come into the business. That's how you win in a tight margin commoditized business. That last 20% that some other person's not getting that you're getting. Yeah, that's amazing. Do you have any direct correlation between values and productivity? I mean, it sounds like that's where you're going with it, but it makes perfect sense to me. I mean, if your values aligned and obviously you have strength aligned and your teams are high performing teams, that's really, really comes together. But what's the correlation? Probably five years from now, we'll talk and I'll have done a study on this that'll have data behind it. This is intuitive at this point, And there is some anecdotal data that I have. And so my anecdotal data is that for about 10 years, I started playing with engagement measurements and loyalty measurements, which are the Bain and Gallup tools in my organizations. And then I started measuring them on a quarterly basis. And then I started measuring the core values, how engaged 
the team was with the values. And they usually kind of matched up pretty well. The only difference was on NPS data was more volatile because people, the question for that said, would you recommend a friend or family member to work at your company? What I found with that is I might be doing all the right things to keep a team member engaged, but let's just say there's something sideways that happens in the business that's out of our control. Maybe they won't recommend a friend or family member for that quarter. So that's the one that I give a little bit less value to, which is funny because most people give the most value to ENPS. And I actually give the least amount to that. I think Q12 data is way more impactful. I think rating your core values and looking at how those trend. And I do them on a scale of one to five. Five being you strongly agree with these sta- the statements, four agree three neutral, two disagree, and one strongly disagree. And I want to see a score of 4.2 or above on, on any of these questions like, does my company live the core value of X, Y, and Z every day, you know, to the best of its ability? Do you strongly agree, agree, neutral, disagree, strongly disagree? So I asked questions like that. What I started doing is triangulating that data departmentally. And I'd ask those questions. It's a thing called a full body scan, which if anyone in the listening wants to know about, you can email me. And I do this with some of my advisory clients. And so what I started doing though is I would take that data, I'd slice and dice that data it was anonymous because I really wanted honest data, but I would look at it departmentally and from a location basis. And at this point, I had 13 locations, 1,000 employees, 27 departments. So I was really slicing and dicing the data. And then I would compare it against traditional KPIs in those different departments and areas. And it was like clockwork. If I was down 20% in one, I was down 20% in the more traditional KPIs around productivity. So I got really clear that, oh, wow, if this engagement data is down, the productivity data is down, which is like, oh, really? Uh, that, that seems like crazy, you know? Like, like, no, I mean, like, that's pretty obvious. Like, if my team's engagement's down, I'm guessing they're not going to be hitting their productivity metrics in the same way. Or maybe they're at par. Maybe they're hitting the average number, but they're not, uh, you know, above par. Maybe they're not above average. And the reality is, like, I don't know about you, but I don't want to run, run an average company. I want to run an above average. I want to run an excellent company. And so I started looking at data, and it was just consistent. Whenever the engagement data dropped, my productivity data dropped. And so I just said, this is really simple. The more my people are engaged, the more they're living the values. The values are a tool that I can leverage for engagement. And I want the most engaged people I could possibly have. And I just started measuring engagement religiously against productivity metrics and against core value data. And before I knew it, I was like, yeah, this is easy. Highly engaged, high core values, high productivity. Less engaged, less core values, less productivity. And productivity equals dollars in my book. So I I said this earlier on that I'm 60% CEO and 40% artist. The 40% artist loves core values and the artistry of it and being creative and wants to engage people. And then the 60% CEO comes in and says, show me the money, you know? (laughs) You know, I want to see that. I want to see revenue. I want to see expense less than revenue historically going down. I want to see record profits, you know, because that's the oxygen to go create more impact as far as I'm concerned. To summarize a little bit, you have to make the, not only you have to take the core values and bring them alive in your organization, you have to constantly measure, adapt, and test them to make sure that they're working inside your organization. Not that you're going to change the values, but, you know, to to continue to... So, you know, when you're testing them, what are you what are you changing? Are you just... Yeah, never the values, always the company. Oh, just anything. It's like, you know, I'm looking for areas to optimize the, the business. The full body scan, which is the tool I built, that tool, what it does is it really gives some insights into what's happening. And then when I start to see trends, because we do a bunch of verbatims in there as well, the data is not good. I have verbatims that we ask questions like, what's the number one thing we should start doing, stop doing, or continue doing? Or what if do you have the resources to be successful in your job? If not, what do you need? 
right? If you own the company, what's the one thing you would do today, you know, to make this a better company, right? So I ask those six questions. And what I really do is I just look at the engagement data. And when I see things I don't like, I go start reading the verbatims. And now what I'm doing is looking for, for trends and themes. And sometimes it's a managerial issue. Sometimes it's, it's a process issue, right? Sometimes it's, a, it's an actual tools broken that I'm asking them to go dig ditches every day and I'm giving them a toothpick and telling them, hey, well, why aren't you digging dish, dishes? And they're like, well, you gave me a toothpick, man. And I'm like, oh, I thought that was a shovel. My bad. Yeah, interesting. Well, let me shift gears on you a little bit. Um, same vein, but how do you look at values at home too? I mean, now, you know, you talked about productivity and performance and profitability and how all of those things correlate to having good values and bringing the right people on board. You know, you can't use the same measures for family, yet core values are equally valuable, if probably not more in your family. So how do you think about it from a family perspective? I'm funny because I always do things backwards. Um, you know, I did them for my business first, and then I realized that I didn't have core values in my life, that I, w- I was kind of doing the same thing everyone else does in their business, which is like, ah, I know what I stand for. It's like, I want to, I want to be creative and I got to be passionate about, you know, life and I really want balance, but I never do it. And, you know, I really want to be happy, but I constantly have negative talk to myself. So I was like breaking all my values consistently. And about three years ago, I got into this program. I'm sorry, two years ago, I got in this program called Stegen, which is a integral leadership program. And the first thing we had to do was design our values. And so like a lot of people struggle with it. I wrote mine in like one hour. I was like, oh, but this is old. You wrote the book on it. I mean, you wrote the book on it. So of course. I think at that point, I was just starting to write the book. I hadn't written it at that point, but I was like about ready. I was literally this, the month after I started the program, which was the month we were asked to write our values was when I started writing my the book. So I literally wrote my core values in like an hour because I had had them in my head for so long. I mean, it was a pretty easy process for me. And then what I realized was, well, how do I bring him into my family? Which is, you know, this is the thing. And, and so I, I did it, you know, again, I failed. I didn't do a good job at it. And then I was like, look, this is easier. I'm making this harder than it needs to be. And, and so for me, I just started using them. Now I'll tell you, when you have a book about core values, it's one more reason to talk about your core values <laughs> on a regular basis. Sure. Help. But I have a daily accountability partner and he asks me the question every day, did you live one of your core values yesterday? Which one and why? Did you hit one of your core value goals? I will tell you, I'm not very good at setting my core value goals on a daily basis, but I do start to think, did I do things that align to my values? So again, they're part of the story. They're things I talk about. For my family, what I did, because I wanted my kids to learn them and my wife to learn them, is now I do family meeting every Sunday. And we start off by reading one of the core values out loud, which is something I promote for people to do in their companies. My kids are not that great at reading it. So hopefully they'll be, you know, my 11 year old should be able to read core values. That, that, that actually was an untrue statement, but I, I read them out loud. And then I say, what core value did you live this week? And you know, how'd you live it? And, you know, tell me, tell a story around it. Cause I think we learn through storytelling, right? So just having that quick conversation, which we could do it in our families, we could do it in our companies, but having that formal meeting every Sunday, I make breakfast for the family. We talk about what core value we live. Then we talk about what core value we want to live this coming week. And then we set goals around it. Those are things that just by having the conversation, it makes it an asset that we start to use more often. If you want that invisible scale, it doesn't matter if it's in your business or in your personal life, you have to use it. So for me, I'll, I'll be honest with the audience. I use core values really intentionally twice a week. Once when my partner asked me if I lived one of my core values yesterday, I usually say yes. And then he asked me if I hit one of my core value goals. I usually say no, because I'm not intentional enough and I'm still practicing. And then during family meeting. And then every now and again, if I'm on a show like this, I'll talk about my values. I mean, I talked about my values three times already. Yeah. Right. That's me using my values. So let me ask you, you know, we, we started this talking about midlife and I think midlife has been an, it's an interesting passage for most people. How, how has midlife affected 
your implementation of your values. You know, I've seen you personally transform a lot in the last couple of years and, you know, COVID's affected people and all that. But I'm curious, how do you feel, you know, going through midlife has affected the way you show up in the world and how does that relate to your values? You know, I'm just getting to know myself. I do believe that we are master liars to ourselves. Like for someone like myself that has a lot of pride around being honest to know that, you know, I had a realization that I'm very honest with everyone else and I'm very maliciously dishonest with myself and in a way that's probably meant to protect me, but at a certain point stopped serving me. And so for me, A, getting clear on that and B, having the asset of my core values being really defined, it just gives me some contrast, right? If I want those six values to happen, but I'm over here lying to myself about these things. Like I used to tell one of well, the biggest lie I told myself was that I loved myself, that I was kind to myself. And then I was like, no, you're not. You're a fucking asshole to yourself. Sorry, I didn't mean to curse. That's yeah, okay. Um, but the, the, I didn't have a better way to explain that. So, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a brutal to myself. I would never treat my children or any of my friends or family members the way I used to treat myself. Used to is the key because it was a realization I had fairly recently. And I was like, I'm going to stop doing that. I'm going to start treating myself way better. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah. So why? Because I say my number one core value is happiness. <laughs> like, Yeah. And yet you're doing the opposite of that. Yeah. Uh, my number one core value is happiness. You idiot, Darius. Like... <laughs> You're not good enough. You haven't made a billion dollars. You shook Elon Musk's hand and you felt like a loser because you were one. Right? Like, like I shook his hand. I kind of felt that way, honestly. I was, although I was excited, I never washed my hand after I shook his hand. But you know what? Like, I felt that way right after. And now, if I did, I would not feel that way at all. Oh, me either. Honestly, that's the best thing about midlife for me is just, like you said, just loving who you are. Like, I, I had this fantasy that I had to be a tech billionaire to be successful in life. And, you know, I just realized that just doesn't matter that much to me. Like, the other things matter to me more. And so I just need to live the full expression of who I am. I had a kid ask me the other day, he's like, he was trying to pitch me on buying this like $20 million, like essentially, I can't remember what they're called, but it, but it's like the Midwest version of Lowe's hardware commercial, like this massive commercial real estate thing. And it was like 10% down, $20 million building. Like, you know, there's all these strings attached. And I was like, if something happens to that company, you know, it's a huge investment, number one in my book, even though it's a low down payment for such a big piece of real estate, still you're cutting a seven figure check. And I was like, I'm like, I will raise money for that, this, that, and the other. And so anyway, long story short, I said to him, I said, hey, man, listen, if I double my net worth, I will not be twice as happy. I probably won't even be like 5% more happy. But if I lost my net worth, I would be 100 times more pissed. <laughs> you know, my net worth is like, I'm okay, right? I've done good. But there's a lot of people that did a hell of a lot better than I have, right? And more power to them. It doesn't even matter right? At a certain point. And what I realized was like, that is such a stupid game, but we all play it. I, I got a buddy that was telling me that this guy's really, really successful guy, like super successful. And he's like, you know, I used to pull up into like the Vail airport in my, in my turboprop plane and feel like a loser because I'd pull up next to a jet. Yeah. There's always somebody that's better or bigger or Here's where the story gets better. Then he went and bought like a pretty nice jet. And then he pulled up next to a Gulfstream 5 now. It feels like a loser. And he said, when that happened to me, I realized I'm over this. But I mean, dude, if you have a jet and, it's, and he has a nice jet, it's not a Gulfstream 5, but it's still a nice jet. To hear someone say that, because like, I would love to be in a position to do that. And I'm not to have a plane because I think flying private jet would be awesome to actually be able to afford it. There's plenty of people that do it that can't afford it, but I actually want to be able to like, yeah, I totally can afford that. Right. That would be a cool thing. Will I, will I materially affect my life to make that happen? Never. Like I will not go do what some people do to make that happen because it's not worth it. I don't want to like lose time with my kids. I've missed enough time with my kids that I can't go get back. I've missed enough time with myself that I can't go get back. 
I'm sure as hell not going to go grind to go build something so that I can like go and compare myself to some richer person five years from now, you know, and be at a different level that I'm comparing myself with. That achievement gap game is a losing game for yourself. And I think it's a good way to waste your life. You've had a lot of epiphanies around that. I mean, I remember when you had your exit and I think that you were calm, I think you said for about a week, and then you were right back at being concerned. And, you know, the takeaway I had for you is that having the success was never the issue. There was something internally that was driving you that was causing your discontent. And I think that's true for everybody, right? Like, and you know, you're talking about this achievement gap and people are chasing something externally that really is something that's in- internally. Like, so a good lie, we started the show that I was telling the Duggar that I had a client that like, I do really high ticket, especially advisory work. I'm a really expensive consultant that comes in and now and helps. I have like 12 clients, probably average revenue is about 70 million. But one of my clients is running into some financial trouble and you know, it's a big company. And the, and they're like, hey, we want to, you know, we want to put notice in with on the services. And so immediately, mind you, like my life changes absolutely zero percent by them doing this or not doing this with me. Immediately I started tripping out about money. And so this is the lie I was talking about earlier. Like anyone in their mother that understood my balance sheet, my income statement, and understood that what had just happened and would see that my brain did what it did, which was went into like panic mode, would be like, dude, you have to go see a psychologist, which by the way, I do see a psychologist, but they're great. They're great. Everybody should have more than one. I have one for not every day of the week, but definitely from different modalities. They're the best. And the reality is my brain's lying to me. And one of the things that I've realized, and I was thinking about this, it's funny, this morning I was thinking about this. I was like, you know, I think I might need to change one. Of, I might need to like adjust or change one of my core values or maybe tweak one of my descriptives. Because one of the, the word that has been floating to the service for me a lot in the last 90 to 120 days is that I am super resourceful. Mm-hmm. I love that. Yeah. Like I never thought of myself as resourceful until I realized how resourceful I am. And for me, time is a tool that I get to real create a lot of value with. So like to lose one opportunity, like we lose opportunities all the time, you know, or things change that maybe we're getting value in one area and then we stop getting value there. But all that does is free you up to go, if you're resourceful, to go and apply that resourcefulness somewhere else, you know? And for me, I was like, all right, like, I don't like that this is happening. You know, there's some layered reasons why I don't like it, but there's all these opportunities I actually could create with this, you know? The old me would have really got stuck in the moment of, oh man, what if your next client does this too? Mind you, I have another client that's signing up that hasn't even started while this is happening, right? This is a prime example of my core value that, again, around being a resourceful person is that I was out there like looking for more clients in the event that this happened. And now that it happened, I started like panicking, knowing that it would happen at some point and being prepared for it and then tripping out about it. And I was like, that's monkey brain getting in the way of me living a better life. Are you happy? It's your, you know, it's it's getting in the way of you living one of your core values, which is happiness. Right. And so that's the area that I've been working on a lot in midlife that I realize is like, this is a, the biggest opportunity I've ever had in my life for my soul to align with my being and my being to align with my brain and my brain to align with my values. And in the past, those were all over the place. Now, you know, one of the things you, you mentioned resourcefulness to me in our forum meeting, it really struck a chord with me because to me, one of the things, just different languages, like I've really been meditating on the idea of just having full trust in my capability, right? Like we can't affect the external world. The external world's going to do what it's going to do. But if I trust in my own ability, another way to say that is I trust and believe in my resourcefulness, then I can weather whatever happens to me because there's really no, you know, there's no way of controlling that. I mean, sadly, this past weekend, my wife's really good friend died. 
died unexpectedly. And it was just tragic. There's nothing we could have done to really protect that. I mean, and that's probably the worst case scenario, but like lots of things happen. Like you couldn't, there's probably nothing you could have done to not have this thing happen with your client. But if you fall back on your own trust of yourself and your resourcefulness, then your internal weather doesn't get disturbed. Like, you know, you have it, you can go create another one or you can create another thing. So to me, that's a big part of at least my own practice of self-compassion and self-care is just trusting in my own abilities. Yeah. And I think that that's where people, I think people in midlife have that spark. Like you're asleep because you're doing whatever it is that you were always doing, maybe in your twenties and thirties. And then you have this window. One of my coaches I have who's He's not a therapist, but he's he's a performance coach, uh, Jeff Spencer. He's like, look, there's a window between like 38 and 45 and you wake up and you get to reobserve your life and make the changes you want to make. And that window, it actually, it, it starts between 38 and 43 and people either engage in it or they run away from it and then they go back to sleep and then they just die. Like they die whatever life that they've chosen to be asleep at. Well, this is where neurosis comes in. If you don't really listen to that call, you can go run from it. But it turned, it shows back up in neurosis and other problems. Yeah. You, then you get disease or you live this life of quiet desperation. And this is probably one of the reasons why there is, a, you know, this record number of people post midlife committing suicide now, because in our generation, at least, and the one before ours. And so I look at it and I go, when that happened to me and mine happened at 40, was when that thing was when that that third eye opened up and was like I see something and I was like something's missing in my life and I just don't know what it is. I, that was exactly what I said at forty. I was like I don't know what it is. Something it feels like it's off. It doesn't feel like I'm, I, I have this great life, but like I don't feel satisfied as I should feel. By forty one, actually still at forty, but right before I turned forty one, that whisper turned into a scream. Yeah. <laughs> And then by 42, man, I was deep in it. You know, I, I left, I resigned from my job as CEO of the company I'd built, this company of my dreams. And I, you know, I'm turning 43 actually on Sunday. And I was thinking about it this morning when I woke up. So tomorrow's April 30th, May 2nd is my birthday. And 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 I was like, the 42nd turn around the sun, is that what it is? We go around the sun once a year. Is it is, is that what it is? Yep. 42nd turn. What a doozy. Yeah. Wow. What a year. Like when I look at where I was a year ago, mentally and psychologically and spiritually, and where I look at where I'm at right now, and I look at the things I'm questioning, and I look at the, the way I'm approaching self-talk or, you know, like framing or like even after literally I'm, I'm doing this thing now, Doug, where I'll say something negative and I'll say, why did I say that? And I'll stop it and I'll say it again, positive right after. Wow. I love it. Like I just started doing that this week because I read this really cool book called Wealth Can't Wait that a friend of mine wrote named David Osborne. And it's around the mindset of the wealthy. And I realized that, you know, and he says it and he's a really successful guy. He says wealth is a mindset and it is. And you can have an abundance mindset or you can have a, you know, scarcity mindset. And I realized I lived my whole life with a scarcity mindset. I completely agree with you. This is a this is an ongoing challenge for me too to shift into this mindset of abundance. Everything you said just resonates with me. And I, I think one of the books that I read that I thought was really powerful in this was called The Middle Passage, How to Finally Grow Up and by James Hollis or something to that effect. And it helped me think about this a little bit differently than like midlife crisis. It's, this was really around a passage, like an opportunity. Like you said, some people take it, some people don't, but really an opportunity to retest all of the assumptions that you had going into your life ahead of time, and then decide which ones you want to carry forward and which ones you want to set behind. And for me, you know, I perceive myself to be an optimistic person and all this. I didn't realize how much of a scarcity mindset I had. 
how often I'm downside risk mitigation and thinking about, well, gosh, what if this could be positive and how much that's limiting me? So I, 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 that totally resonates with me. Yeah. You know, it's funny now that I'm doing it, I'm starting to pick up on scarcity mindset all around me or negative talk around me. Whereas before I would engage in it. Now I'm just like, like I'm getting texts from people that will make some like weird comment to me. Like, look how dumb we were about X, Y, and Z. And I'm like, or how smart we were, you know, or I'll say something negative to my kids. And I'm like, I can't say that to them. Like, why am I talking to them? Like, what? this is this liar inside of me lying to me about living a life of misery. And like, I just, you know, I come from a background of where there was a lot of loss and there's this whole study of epigenetics, right? Where, you know, that's like this shadow of DNA around your actual strands of DNA that can carry this trauma, but you can shed it. I'm learning just because I live in a family that there was lots of, you know, depressiveness or there was lots of scarcity. I don't have to live that life. You know, it shouldn't necessarily be around material items. And I struggle with that a lot, that the more material protections I get, the the illusion of safety gets stronger. You know, it's funny. I think the people that have the most, at least with the right mindset, they get it the easiest once they shed those old baggage and those old mindsets because they appreciate what they have in a different way. And that for some reason attracts more of it. Yeah. I think for me, there's kind of a three-step thing here, which is like developing mindfulness. So, you know, this is why I'm a huge fan of meditation, do a lot of meditation, but that mindfulness leads to insight. And through insight, you gain wisdom. Right? And so those three things to me, you know, you go through that shift and then that changes your mindset. So I think you can have just this internal wealth that's unrelated to your balance sheet. And then every the way that you show up in the world is just so much more fulfilling. It's that recognition of that what's going on for you and like the negative talk and your ability to like reframe that and change that is definitely a function of your own mindfulness. And then you start to gain insight into like, oh, wow, I'm noticing this thing. This is where it comes from. And ultimately, you know, that will transform, I think, ultimately into this deeper wisdom about how you show up in the world, you know, and shedding your epigenetic or your generational trauma. I started meditating two years ago, and this is a recent evolution for me from that meditation practice. I'm still not great. Like, I'm not super consistent with my meditation as I was when I threw myself off the cliff of life two years ago. But it's funny now that I look, I'm like, wow, that's what it took for me to get to here. I'm sure I could have gotten here easier, which I think, well, no, I, I say that like, not that it's a bad thing. It's that that's the, how I was set up. That's how I had set myself up was it would have taken that level of extreme to get me out of, to get me here, you know? And now I'm like, you know, why do I do that? Why do I have to, you know, abuse myself in that? And all these changes in my life have always come. I always feel like I've had to learn it in such a hard way. Like a lot of people are like, well, I wouldn't change a thing if I went back. And I'm like, man, you must be way nicer than yourself than I have been in the past. And I realized, actually, it's funny. I didn't even realize this stuff until I'm saying it out loud right now, that I actually think that because I'm so hard on myself, it makes hard things harder. And so at the end of the day, it's like, you know, I was reading this thing about, the, I can't remember the woman's name, but she did a study of people in, in hospice about the, what are like the things that all these hospice patients said to themselves. So like, I would have been nicer than myself. I wouldn't have worked as hard. You know, I would have been more loving. I would have taken more trips. I would have, you know, spent more time with my family and friends. The other thing that, that uh, I always find is if you, when you look at most people on their deathbed, most people don't want to die, right? This is, I'm going to make a joke right now, actually. And because I was talking to uh, a friend of ours, uh, Anton, and I said, hey, you know, like th- there's belief that the first generation that will never die is alive right now right it's technologically that you can actually keep people alive forever and anton's like i'm like would you live forever if you could and he's like oh, i don't think i'd want to do that and i'm like i know you would and he's like what do, he's like what do you mean i'm like i'm like do you know how many losers i've heard 
sit, like say they don't want to die on their deathbed and you're a way more cooler person than most of those people. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm being harsh on them. But, you know, I was talking to my therapist about it that I come from a family of people that have all, for the most part, died young and most from cancer. And I start to look at my own internal behavior around anxiety and how hard I am on myself and worrying about stuff. And I'm like, well, duh, of course that stuff kills you. Well, think about this. So you like the root of words, disease, dis-ease. Oh, wow. Think about that. Yeah. So, you know, I believe that those things are all interrelated. I mean, I don't have any good correlation. I'm sure there's good studies on this, but like the dis-ease causes disease. If you're unhappy and you're suffering causes, it affects you. Yeah, no. And so this kind of comes full circle into this magnet for an elevated life. And for me, it's like getting really clear on my values and then fighting in a positive way. There's so many dynamics at work around like I would fight and I would abuse myself for not making the values happen. And now it's like, no, like a part of that's aspirational to a certain degree. It can't be so aspirational that it's like false, but but it's aspirational in the sense that it's a stretch and I want to fight for, to make it happen. But that's center for me. And I'm going to kindly remind myself what it is and fight in a positive way to make it happen. And being clear on that and, and treating myself well in the path of creating it is where I have found a lot of, I guess, sanctuary at this, at this point. I'm with you. This is I've been on this quest to figure out how do I create the things from the place of, of love, like instead of the place of lack, right? Like, so if, you know, I don't want to whip or abuse myself to get myself to like work out or do these other things, you know, so I went on this quest, I spent months realizing that I needed to work out, but I wasn't going to do it out of the sense of like looking in the mirror and telling myself that I need to lose weight or whatever. I was just going to, and one day just start shifted for me. And I'm just like, no, oh, I'm working out because it feels good. It's the right thing for me to do. So, you know, I'm sure that there are other ways of going about this, but I was particularly clear. I wanted to avoid any self-aggressive behavior towards like in my life. And, and what I realize is I get up and go to work. I like working hard. I like serving people. I like doing all these things. And none of that comes from this, you know, self-aggressive whip. It comes from a place of, you know, not to get too woo-woo, but like a place of love or like a place of just kind of innate creativity. And so to tap into that, I feel like you can create from that place, not from this place of scarcity. Um, and that's a shift. Like, and that, you know, I don't know if that resonates for you, but that's what I, what I kind of hear the meta of what you're shifting from is like, you were very successful and you've been very successful, but it came at a hugely high cost to get there. And you're like, I know I can create and do amazing things in the world. I just don't want to pay that price. And I think that that's a shift of creating from from a different place. And that's and I'm fun to watch you go through that transition, my friend. Yeah, no, no I appreciate it. Couldn't have said it better. For, for me, it's I always created from a place of self-loathing and punishment and anger and proving people wrong. And, you know, the greatest revenge is a big success, you know, bullshit like that, you know, and it's like or not. <laughs> <laughs> or how about I just go create because it's awesome and I'm going to love doing it and it's going to be cool and I'm going to go build something that's meaningful, that matters. The scorecard needs to make sense to a certain degree just so that it's you know sustainable, but there is no like fake scorecard around wealth and power and all the other bullshit that like at the end, there's always going to be someone wealthier or more powerful than you more than likely. And it, let's just say God willing, I become the most powerful, wealthy person on earth. The chances of me holding on to that title is probably fleeting. Well, it's guaranteeably fleeting because although, you know, some people think you're not going to die, I think that the uh, odds are still probably much in the favor that we're not all going to live forever. So yeah, it just depends on how I live forever. Like if I live forever, like in my current form, I'm in. 
maybe you know i'll throw another 10 years on me i'm I'm becoming a total ageist now i'm like looking at older folks and i'm like how am i gonna feel when i'm that age i'm like not like that's not that far off for me like i have mediterranean blood so i actually feel like you and i have both aged pretty well like we have a youthfulness to our age i've been around the sun a few more times than you have too man and i feel the same way (laughs) so feels good to be even though i'm a little older i feel very youthful I feel really youthful. Like the only thing that where I feel older is where I hear really, this is where the wisdom context comes in, where I hear youth, the youth is wasted on the young and you hear really idiotic things being said. And I'm like, I'm being judgy right now, but that was a really dumb thing. I'm like, I'm sure they'll learn. <laughs> yeah. I mean, for as hard as we are on millennials, I got to say, I, I, you know, I've met a bunch of young men that are very switched on that are wise beyond their years. And it gives me a lot of hope, like, you know, because I think I've had to learn like a lot of the lessons I'm learning at 46. These guys are learning at 27, 28. So they just have a lot more time to live in wisdom. Yeah, it's probably that they may be on the margins, but it, it they're just they're inspiring humans to me. Yeah, yeah, good, good on them. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, and so you know, in spite of all of you know this this internal hardship, I, I just want to acknowledge this beautiful gift you've given to the world in the form of the core value of the equation. I bought a bunch of them, and I ship them out to all these aspiring entrepreneurs all the time. And in fact, I did it again today. And it's just, I truly want to, you know, it's such a gift that you've given to people. And I just, it, it was amazing for me personally to have a window seat at its creation. It just, I feel so much more connected to it. I mean, it's your brilliance. It was just fun to go along for the ride with you, Darius. It's just been, it's been a joy. Well, the feeling is mutual, Duggar, and I feel fortunate to, for me, anything that I teach is usually just something that I struggled with. That that book would have saved me a lot of time, you know? So the, the, I wrote it from that place of like, hey, I'm going to share my experience with the world and this is the solution I came up with. And I don't know of another way of doing it. Maybe one of those 27-year-olds will make it better, hopefully. Yeah, well, you know, well, I think, you know, through great hardship creates great rewards, right? Like, I mean, you had to go through that to give that gift to the world. So, you know, you struggled for everybody else's benefit. So thank you for that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I do feel confident because the, the, I will say the book launch game is, is an interesting game, right? Because there's a lot of ego involved and there's a lot of, you know, you work really hard to try to, if you want it to be commercially successful, you have to work really hard to get people's attention and people's attention is very fleeting and it's very fickle. And so you get it out there. People are like, now what, what's next? And I'm like, we just opened our door for business. It's like day one. You know, so I'm right now a year ago today was when I sold my first pre-order of the book and literally to the day and I launched it September 15th. And the cool thing about I think about that book, which I'm excited for, is I'm like, you know, some people write books that that have like a a resonance that kind of goes away after a couple of years or it's not relevant anymore. And I'm like, ah, values have been here for a few thousand years. They'll be here for a few thousand more. <laughs> so I'm like, I'm pretty sure I'm going to get to talk about this book long into my years. So I'm, I'm excited to for it to have its effect and it's out there now and it's doing its thing and I'm just continuing to move it along. And uh, I'm excited for it to have some real impact over the over the next couple of decades. Absolutely. Well, I can just tell you personally, not only has it had a huge impact in my own life in terms of my own values, the values that show up at our organization, the values that we've created in our ecosystem, and it's been implemented in the values of a lot of our local companies. So, you know, sometimes you don't see the impact of your work, but I see it every day, Terrace, honestly. It, and I just am so happy to be able to share your wisdom. And I appreciate your generosity, not only with your time for me, but then also to the other entrepreneurs that you help serve in, in our community and other places. It's just, it's just an honor.
Duggar, the pleasure is more than mine. Yeah. So if people want to find you, how do they find you? Yeah. Uh, my, my website, therealdarius.com. That's where there's all things Darius. I'm turning the book into a course to teach people how to turn the companies uh, to really design the core values and they'd be working with me in a group setting that's called the core value academy that launches actually we're we're launching it right now so that's so anyone that wants to work in it some in a capacity with me uh, you know where they're actually getting to do it the core value equation way you know check out the core value equation.com or the core value academy and.com or just go to the real darius.com that sounds great well thanks so much for your time today darius i really appreciate it it's been a real pleasure Duggar, I love you, man. I appreciate it. I love you too, man. All right.